आई एम सुमित गुप्ता एंड दिस इज चूजिंग लीडरशिप अ पॉडकास्ट फॉर हाई परफॉर्मर्स विद बिग ड्रीम्स एट वर्क एंड लाइफ दिस इज अ पॉडकास्ट फॉर पीपल हु नो डीप इन साइड दैट देयर इज मोर हैव यू अचीव्ड अ ग्रेट डील ऑफ सक्सेस बट ऑन द इनसाइड यू स्टिल फील एम्प्टी एंड लाइक एन इंपोस्टर डू अदर पीपल सी यू एज अ स्ट्रॉन्ग लीडर एंड यू वंडर वाई इट स्टिल फील्स सो लोनली एंड सफोकेटिंग The aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content but instead shift the context under which you operate. I dare to speak to the tremendous power which you already have rather than what you believe are your strengths and limitations. This podcast is called Choosing Leadership because that is what leadership is, a choice. And this is the leadership journey series. I am interviewing leaders with an interesting story to learn how they got where they are today. we all have a lot to learn from each other's stories of where we started where we are now and our successes and struggles on the way with this series of interviews my attempt is to give leaders an opportunity to share their stories and for all of us to learn from their generous sharing john featherby is the founder of shoremount an award winning consulting firm which helps organizations be more human purposeful and adaptable for the challenges of the 21st century he is also an ambassador at b lab and part of the b corp movement which is the world's leading business as a force for good movement redefining the role of business in society in the interview john talks about how can we make work a place where people can seek and find dignity uncover who they are and find joy in everything that they do in addition to just making a living He opens up about his faith, about our tricky relationship with money, and he shares what he does today is the reason why he is here. He also talks about the importance of having people to lean back on, and also the importance of celebration in the context of leadership. Hi, John. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Choosing Leadership podcast. Very, very happy to be here, Simon. I'm glad to have you here. and for our listeners can you share a little bit about who you are before we start and what do you do yeah sure who am i what a complex question good one to start with so yeah i'm john john featherby i have the good fortune to in my case be married i have four children 8 to 14 brings its own beauty and its challenges i live in a kind of rural part of england just north of london so out in the countryside that's why i love just love spending time outdoors so it's good for me out here and really for for my whole life I've been connected to conversations about business as a force for good but I've been focused on it full time professionally for I don't know 10 10 to 15 years wonderful so can you share how you how came to be doing what you're doing today or is there any particular event or events which happened which shaped you or shaped your views around work and business Yeah, for me, I yeah, some people have singular events for me. I grew up around it so my parents, my father was a corporate lawyer, but in his sort of free time, my parents led by their sort of Christian faith, both felt very strongly about the fact that work or money business had lost its way a bit and that how you made money really mattered and what business's role in society really mattered. So during the sort of 90s and early noughties they would go, travel around the country talking about these things and I'd follow them or or more particularly at home we would have a lot of discussions around the supper table 
about the importance of money and, but more particularly less about money, more just about the concept of work and enterprise and what businesses could, should or shouldn't do. So by the time I left home, I didn't really realize it, but I'd been soaked in this philosophy about a better way of thinking about business than the status quo was pursued. And then watch them kickstart some of the things we're seeing now, like impact investing. And so my parents were the first social impact fund investors in the UK. And that, that I just realized then when I was in my mid twenties, that this is what I wanted to give my time and life to as well. This question about how do we kind of rescue the company in a way and provide a place where people can seek and find dignity and who they are and joy in what they do and as well as making a living. Yeah. It's, and then obviously during that, during the time I've been, it's been something I wanted to go after you, every now and again, you have these experiences that kind of really hit home. Oh, this is why I do this. This is why I get up and do this is why, despite the pain, I keep going or whatever it might be, but that's the kind of big picture of, of why I do it, why, where I came from. Yeah. And, and you used a very interesting word rescue. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? What is it, what's the new philosophy or the different philosophy that you have brought on? And, and also since you mentioned about a long time ago, like when in the time of your parents, how has work changed or how is work evolving? Let's say in the last few decades and where is it going in the next few decades? What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, sure. I guess going back in time and then even further back beyond my parents. I, some of the, some of the, some of the things we're talking about in terms of how an organization should now be run and the values and the culture that sh companies should instill, they're not all necessarily new. I think it's more that we lost our way and we forgot what was important or we separated what we felt was important from what we actually did. It's, it's very common to come across people who almost live two lives, so they have their personal values and the way they think life should be run and what they do, but they behave in or take decisions in a very different way when you put them in a big shiny core. And I, so I think, how has it changed? I think it's particularly over the last few years, it's it, the momentum has changed enormously. If you wanted to talk about discussions about ethics of business in the nineties were not just seen as irrelevant, they were re pushed away and. People had got into a rhythm of doing things. It was post the eighties when the capital markets had expanded a lot. And I think I just, I, it, it wasn't just business as well that had a problem with it. NGOs and large charities had their place in the world and saw business as the enemy, the church and other, other, I think other faiths, there was this problem. Money was flawed or weren't interested in your job. The job was something that happened separately to that part of that spiritual side of your life. And I think there was just a sort of few people saying, hang on a second. We all actually have something positive to share here. That's sort of almost in the middle of that Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. And most of us spend most of our life at work. So it is a question that should matter. Uh, so I think the, the work that I've been involved in, in terms of seeing it, a lot of it has been connecting individuals into groups or whatever to, to have discussions about, what, you know, who like you asked at the beginning, who, who are you really, what really matters to you? Are you really fulfilled? Do you think the people, if you're running an organization, do you think the people who work for you are fully alive? Are they flourishing or is this something they do and then, and then 
they go home and they recover over the weekend to go back to Monday to Friday. Uh, I think I would say we've seen step changes, but I think the pandemic has accelerated this question around that it, people want to do meaningful things with their time. And so I think the, the company of the future is going to be quite different, but for a number of different reasons, not just meaningful work, the, the family structure has changed. People who goes to work has changed and digital, the, the digital landscape has changed. The regulatory landscape is changing. Almost everything has changed except for the structure of a company. And so that is increasingly in tension with the way, the pace at which the world moves, what people are seeking, the need to reintegrate companies with their various stakeholders. So there's an awakening going on around how interdependent organizations and people are. And a very rampant individualism has made people feel like I can force my will on the world and the companies have felt the same, but I think are increasingly finding that it's not quite as straightforward as that. And you're not quite as in control as you thought. So it's, it's hard to know where it will end up, but I think it's quite an exciting time for, well, certainly people like me to be involved in, because it feels like we're starting to bear fruit. Yeah. And, and you spoke about money and also about the church. Can you share a little bit about some of those ideas, maybe which we have outgrown about money or about capitalism? Yeah. I think historically, sometimes there was a view that kind of certainly in some spiritual communities that money was fundamentally evil or there was something fundamentally wrong with money and it was always going to tarnish the people who had it as opposed to the idea that it's not the money itself that's often a problem it's a question of the heart is it what you're in pursuit of and you know, what your organization is trying to do so my company our sort of taglines of purpose is to restore joy meaning and freedom to every workplace and we constantly in pursuit of that, or are we trying to make lots of money? And sometimes if the two are in conflict, what are you going to do? So I think it's starting to see money at all, as opposed to something that you have rather than it has you, I think. And then you start to get into conversations about you know, how do we choose to invest? How do we use money more wisely? How can we redirect its energy and power in a positive direction, as opposed to just being captured by it all the time? And obviously money also has this sort of knock-on effect about who am I being a question of the materialism I might have, things I own, the brands I wear, all and sometimes it, some of it is craftsmanship and you pay good money because of how it's made and sometimes it's just inflated value because of what you think it gives you in terms of identity. So I think that's taking some unraveling as well. So this, I don't think we're necessarily moving out of capitalism. I think trade has always been part of the human experience and it always will be. But I think we are perhaps moving beyond the sort of obsession with consumerism and material identification. Mm. And that will have an impact on the economy, but it you know could shift. In yeah. And as you do this work in companies and organizations, what is it that you find most challenging, especially when you bump up against these old ideas, which are still very entrenched? And many times on a subconscious level. Yeah. The most challenging thing is always the people. It's in a sense that a lot of this is much more personal than people want to realize or accept. It's very easy to go into a company and sell the idea of change in the context of let's change the management structure or let's rewrite the performance management system or appraisals or whatever it might be, write new policies, all that stuff, whilst it it, you know, whilst it often needs doing is the easy thing to do because it's out there. It's not me. It's a structural thing that we can fiddle with 
But ultimately the real problem is, is in people. It's in their heart and souls and their spirit. Why do I do this? What matters to me? How am I going to treat people? What level of courage do I have? How much sacrifice could I cope with? The real work is the hard work. And we're so used to the problem being over there that actually getting particularly leadership sometimes to stop, to stop trying to control and manage and be in every, be in every decision and actually do some work on themselves mm. and make room to think and to stop. Sometimes that can be quite frightening for people because they don't like, they don't want to stop because they know if I stop and start thinking about myself where I'm at, I'd rather not. So the hard part is always the mindset, this, the heart and the mind. Cause you could walk into a company and give them data on why this is good all day long. That does not mean a board is going to do it because ultimately people are making choices on well, they're used to a certain way and their heart and mind is set on a certain thing. So that's always the difficult, but the difficult bit is as always, of course, always the bit worth doing. It's like going to the gym, not fun. Sometimes it's horrible, but that's that it's the bit that matters. So yeah, that that's the hardest part. Yeah. And the gym example is quite, quite good because I think that's a wonderful analogy also to to building strength in an area where you are usually weak and that it takes time. It doesn't happen Absolutely. like overnight. Yeah. But so just so quickly on that, a metaphor we, we sometimes use is a bit like going to a doctor. If you're, if you imagine an organization being a sick patient and it goes to see a doctor or a consultant, typically a lot of consultants are very happy to give the organization pills that sort of short-term fixes that makes it feel good and masks the pain, but it's not really solving the underlying problem. Whereas actually, if, 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 if you're not well and you go and see a doctor and they turn around and say, you need to sleep properly, you need to get more exercise, you need to up, change your diet, et cetera, et cetera. That's actually what the person needs to do, mm -hmm. but it's a lot more work. The doctor can't do it for you. It's going to take time. It's going to require commitment. And it's not to say you don't need the pills too. You might need some painkillers, but long-term, if you really want to change, you're going to have to put in the effort. And that that's one of the challenges we have at the moment is everybody is rushing to change, but not really stopping to think about how we're going to do that well and how we're going to make that last. Yeah. And how, how do you navigate that challenge for yourself personally, as you're working with multiple companies, multiple people, and you see some of them like succeeding or making use of this and some of them struggling or not wanting to change. So how do you navigate that challenge personally? For you, it, it can be difficult. It brings out the best and the worst in you. I have a few people that I meet with regularly to process what I'm doing, to hold me accountable to my thinking. To I have a wife that's very good at encouraging to make sure I get exercise and I go to bed on time because you you need to be willing to have people in your life that will speak into what you're doing and say, "Summit, John." sort yourself out, stop, put that down and go over there. I'm also quite intentional about taking time out. So obviously I live in the countryside, but going and doing things that are different every now and again, every now and again, I go somewhere else for a few days by myself and just get away from my everyday context to family or work or whatever, and spend some time thinking. I, I have a faith myself. I do you know lean on that and have my kind of rituals or prayer or whatever that helps me feel grounded and connected to a bigger story that I feel I can be part of. So I, but I, ultimately I feel really passionate about what I do. So that helps me get through 
when it can be difficult because I feel what I'm doing with my time is why I'm here. Mm. You know, I think we're all here for a reason and I, I think I've found mine. And so I just, I'm working on, but it's not, it's not always easy. And it can be very frustrating when it's mostly frustrating with people who are implementing changes and they're excited about it, but they're going about it wrong, but you can't reach them because they think they understand what they're doing, but they can't see what they're doing is just putting on plasters. They're not really investing in the thinking they need to be doing that. That's probably the most difficult situation. It's, it's the, rather than people who that's, that's often more difficult than people who don't want to do it. Cause at least yeah. the way they know, they know where they stand and so do you. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are two things which you mentioned here, which is very relevant for any leader is one is that sense of meaning. Mm. Like you said, you, you're playing a role in a, in a larger story. And I think having something larger than yourself yeah. is, 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 a, is like the key to sustain yourself during those tough times and also keep you passionate and uh, energetic during the good times as well. Yeah. Um, and the second thing you mentioned is having a support structure, like having a set of people. And this I found very ironic because a lot of leaders, I see that they try to do it all alone. No. Okay. Right? They, they try to take a lot of weight on their shoulders and not involve the people who are already around them. Like by definition, leadership is a job which requires people to be around you. But uh, how ironic is that, that even despite that, it feels a very lonely to most leaders. Yeah, it's, it is a very lonely place. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not running a big organization or anything, but I, the, more, the bigger that responsibility gets, the lonelier it becomes. And with it comes, often comes more wealth and in the world's eyes, more power. But it can be extremely isolating and, and unfortunately, because you have more wealth and more power, often the case is that people are less sympathetic because they think, oh, you look at your life, you've got that. You're either the enemy or you've got life's good for you. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to care about you. So I often find people in senior positions in those organizations and they really struggle. One thing I didn't say, which you said, which I should have done. It is also the importance of celebration. It is really important to, even with the small things, you get to take time out to feast and celebrate and find gratitude and joy in what you're doing and where you've got to, even if the big picture can be difficult, celebrating just being alive and even if it's not material progress, but the big thing. Yes, I think you spoke about rituals uh, and then celebration and gratitude. And focusing on the positive are like some of the rituals, which I think are often missed because of our, our brains are designed to focus on the negative yeah. or what is not working. And then there's huge uh, potential if we just focus on uh, and celebrate what is already working. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. And, and just to shift gears, right? What is it that people misunderstand about uh, you the most? What people misunderstand it. That's a good question. I guess that's a question I'd love to know the answer to. I quite like challenging the stereotype of who I am. I come from a particular background and sometimes that means in some situations, people make assumptions about how you're going to see the world. Uh -huh. And I enjoy sometimes disrupting those and, and being surprised at what my perspective on something might be or what I might say. Yeah. I, th I think that probably, I don't know, maybe that's changing as I get older too what people misunderstand about me, but what a good question. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I don't want to, maybe I don't want to know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all, we all have those uh, spots, I think, which uh, we would rather avoid, but can also be very like enlightening places to, to learn and grow. Maybe I should ask my kind of, I guess that I was going to say, ask the other group of people I meet with regularly, but I guess 
if they have assumptions about me that are wrong, they, I'm, they might not know that they're wrong. That's the difficulty of asking the questions, but yeah, good one to explore. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, the way I see questions, I think the best questions have no answers and best questions like continue to be questions, even if you find an answer to them. And, and I think that's what uh, often is missing, right? In organizations as well, that we are too yeah. rushed to find the answer and then implement. And sometimes we miss a lot because of that rush. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you share a time when somebody had a big influence on how you see the world of work or leadership? And if there is anything specific which they said or which they did? Yeah, I, I have, um, I guess I have a number of mentors, some who are real in the sense that they're people I know. I also think we can be mentored by people we don't know through reading their material or following what they say. I, yeah, I think undeniably my parents, their choices had quite a big impact on me. I didn't necessarily realize at the time, but they were, they were exceptionally sacrificially generous. They, they very fortunate by anybody's standards, but I didn't take that for granted and did a lot more than the average person would be anywhere willing to do. And I, that certainly left its mark in terms of the importance of being willing to take those risks for other people. And obviously my choices have emerged from some of those things. It's yeah, it's, you know, I, there's no kind of necessarily individuals that have shaped me in a big way, but I'm lucky to have a lot of people around me who in lots of ways have helped guide me over the years. And obviously my family, I always try and see the people the, the, when we're working with a company, trying to see in the employees that work there, that they're not just a kind of, they're not a number. So I guess I would feel in terms of how I do things and feeling inspired, you've been married a long time, mad in love with her and have four wonderful children. And I project that into the work that somebody else's son or daughter or somebody's wife or husband, and they have friends and family and how would they feel? And so I, that keeps me focused. I tries to keep me focused on what I think matters. Yeah. And as you spoke about uh, children, so how do you see the workplace will be different for the next generation or how would you like it to be? Yeah, I think they're already starting to shape it. I think I actually happen to be a governor of a school. So this is a really topical question for me. How do we design education to support children becoming adults for jobs that not, are not only very different from the average professional of my age, but potentially not just companies that aren't there, but whole sectors that might show up in the next kind of 10 to 15 years. I think the trend we're on will continue. I think we're at the kind of bottom of a sort of exponential curve. I think it's quite difficult to predict where it will end up. I think some things will always be the same. You know, people are people and there are some things which have been constant forever. And I think that's one of the things that corporates sort of underestimate with when particularly big companies, when they start talking about questions of purpose and meaning in work, those are such deep human questions that I think it's a mistake for them to imagine that they can control those in a very kind of manufactured corporate way, just for the company's benefit. Actually, you potentially open up a whole series of questions that you weren't prepared for that people or discussions that people want to have. So I, yeah, I, I think they'll becoming increasingly, the boundaries of companies will become increasingly porous. I think mm -hmm. you'll get a, a lot more partnership, a lot more collaboration. Yeah. You might, we might have situations in. 10, 15 years where a company lasts 10 minutes and there's a million people doing one thing and they solve a problem together. Who knows? I don't know. It's a, it's an exciting question, which is why I do it. Cause it's enjoying, it's like watching 
the story being written as you do the work. Yeah. And and if there is somebody who wants to do something ambitious, who wants to start a company, yeah. What advice would you give them because if if they go out and seek advice or if they start operating, I think they will still bump up or rub up against those old paradigms. So how would you recommend them to yeah. to start something? I'm part of a movement called B Corp, which is a kind of movement and a certification for companies that you know, see themselves as trying to have an increasingly positive impact on the world, socially, environmentally, for the workers, etc. And so there's four and a half thousand of us now globally-ish. And we have a kind of free online public resource, which is a framework that effectively helps companies. It's not an exam, it's kind of a long list of ideas for a company to build some scaffolding around which they can pursue some of these ideas. So a, a really good place, really good practical resource is to go B Corp, you Google it, you'll find it anywhere and look, find, and just look through the resources, the questions, the ideas, and it will start to give you something to work with rather than a blank piece of paper. And a third party assessment, we liken it to a bit like your skeleton, you know, it's a, it's something that holds together lots of disconnected ideas. But just like a person needs the flesh and the soul to be a sort of whole thriving human being, it's the same thing with something like B Corp. The framework is help will help you have a strong and healthy skeleton. There's always going to be things outside of a third party assessment that, that need considering, but that's, that's a good place to, and has a lot of credibility. It's seen as a sort of gold standard at the moment, mm -hmm. but a business has a force for good. It's not perfect, but it's, it's very, very good. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, John, for your time in answering these questions. And I'm sure there's a lot of value and a lot of wisdom in the ideas that you have and that you take uh, to companies. So for right. anybody, anybody who is listening, and just before we wrap up, if somebody wants to know more about the kind of work you do and the kind of philosophies and ideas that you have, where can they find out more about that? And how can they reach out to you if they want to? Yeah, but I'm always welcome people to reach out on, I mean, LinkedIn is a good way of reaching me. I guess you see my name on the podcast, John Featherby, go on there, find me, send me an invite. I'll gladly accept it. My company is, is shawmounts.com and B Corp as a organization is worth looking to. And you can con con connect with me through any of but LinkedIn is probably the best place to start. Thank you. Thank you, John, for sharing your ideas. It was wonderful talking to you today. Absolute pleasure. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast and I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction, not just for yourself, but also for those around you. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. I say what might be uncomfortable for me to say or for you to hear, to show you that all our dreams which have been on hold are within our grasp. If you like the sound of it, do not forget to leave a rating. I invite you to subscribe to my newsletter at deployyourself.com slash newsletter. You can also reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook to share any other comment or feedback. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality. And thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit, 
Until next time, keep choosing leadership.